This week on Discipline, I speak with the living legend, Lee Simon. Lee has been inducted into the Australian Radio Hall of Fame, interviewed musical legends like Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, Robert Plant and In Excess. He's worked with industry legends like Molly Meldrum, Michael Gudinski and Eddie Maguire. And he's provided the voice track and soundtrack of countless people's lives. Lee has been involved in radio for a hell of a long time. And as you'll hear, he was even a shareholder in Australia's first FM licence and associated radio station. It's not a case of right place at the right time, as Lee may have you believe. Lee followed his passion and expertly navigated the waters. Lee sustained 40 plus years at the One Radio Network, whilst others, both behind the microphone and behind the scenes, came and went. With insights such as, kind of stay in your lane and look the whole way around you for influences, as they come from the strangest places, you'll find my interview with Lee entertaining, a little different, but very invigorating. Enjoy our chat. Lee Simon, former broadcaster, national executive producer of football, Southern Cross Oz Stereo, welcome to Discipline. Thank you so much. Now, you're literally a part of the furniture in Australia's broadcast radio industry. You're part of the first FM licence being handed out and retired about 14 months ago. I mean, that is a huge journey. Um, But before you got into radio and you were a boy growing up, what did you have your sights set on becoming? Apart from the usual fireman, astronaut, I was also pretty keen to be Zorro at a particular stage for anyone who knows who Zorro is. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. As a a little boy, I wandered around with a cape and a little plastic sword. Yes. Zeds on things. It was a fencing sword, wasn't it? It was a fencing sword. (laughs) Uh, An epi, maybe, uh, for for those from the fencing world. Um, I was involved in high school productions, sometimes on stage, but more often than not, what I preferred was doing audio and lighting for it. I, 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 I was... It wasn't that I was sort of a geek about it, but I I just loved technology, even as it existed then. I'm talking about the 60s. Big mixing desk. Big mixing desk, or what appeared to be a big mixing desk at the day. Two channels. Four? Come on, this is big time. Four track. So I always had a bit of a thing for that stuff. Uh, and then I, I did lighting at the Camberwell Civic Centre for a while while I, when I was in high school, and that was, that was a bit. And I just loved the smell of that industry. My dad, however, uh, said, "Be an accountant, get into finance. Accountants rule the world, and they do. Uh, the finance people control everything, they do." Dad was a hundred percent correct. So I ended up uh, as a trainee with the ANZ Bank, um, with the intention of becoming a banker. But at the same time, I still had this passion for other stuff. And I just kind of stumbled into a career without going into all the boring details about... So you were a teller at the ANZ? Uh, I had almost made it uh, to teller. And little fun things. um, I was at the ANZ Bank in Whitehorse Road in Baldwin. Oh, yeah. And uh, on a particular day, uh, the manager there asked me to move some money between that branch and one that was on Canterbury Road for people that know this is in Victoria. And uh, so I said, what do I do? How do I do that? He said, I'll just put it in the boot of your car and just take it around there. They're expecting you. (laughs) So I put the sacks of coins and cash and whatever in the boot of the car. And as I'm about to head off, he said, I'll take this with you. And he hands me a pistol. (laughs) And I said, what am I supposed to do with this? 
He goes, well, someone points one at you. You point this one back at them, right? And I went, oh, okay. So anyway, I did all that. Like, what am I, is this really what I want to do? Uh, and then I headed off into the city. Uh, there was this accelerated training thing that they had at head office. One lunchtime, I walked past where 3AW used to be in Latrobe Street. They had a sign in the front window saying 3AW Radio School, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 12-week course, Inquire Within, Unquired Within. I signed up, started doing that. Three weeks later, I was working at 3AW. Unreal. Um, uh, it, it literally happened that quickly. Uh, a button monkey. I was a panel, panel operator there. Uh, and it, just in heaven, it was bliss. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it felt yeah. like you found your, you found your niche. Yeah. Um, so how do you go from... That to a program director, uh, what qualified you? Back, oh, I don't know. <laughs> just someone saw a bit of spark, or it, it, just progressing um, through your career. Started as a panel operator, um, very quickly worked out that the people on the other side of the glass, in the studio with the microphone, were making a lot more money than I was, and yeah, I was there watching what they did every day. And I thought, might have a crack at that. Yeah. So after a very short time at AW, I was there for about nine months, somebody who used to work there had gone to Bega, south coast of New South Wales, and uh, he rang me up one day and said, hey, there's a job going here uh, on air if, if you're interested. So I headed up to Bega, missed Melbourne more than I anticipated that I would, missed my friends and my family and everything else. Lasted up there for three months came back to Melbourne, worked at 3DB. I was offered a job there. I was there for three months. I was offered a job at 7HT in Hobart. And I thought, I'll give this another shot. And this was doing production as well as on air. The casino opened in Hobart and a whole bunch of people came down from Sydney for the opening who were involved in a in 2SM, which was in a network of sorts with 3XY and 4IP in Brisbane and 5KA in Adelaide. I was filling in on midnight to dawn. Uh, one of them rang me up while I was on air, said, oh, I've been listening to you. There's a job going in Newcastle in our network if you're interested. I thought it was a hoax call. And I said, if this is real, call back at nine o'clock, hung up, did my shift, went home, had some breakfast, came back to work. He rings up and he said, uh, the job's here if you want it uh, in Newcastle. This was on a Thursday. And I went, oh, look, I'll have a think about it. He said, no, I need your answer now because if you do say yes, you start on Monday. Wow. So the following Monday, I'm in Newcastle, the 2NX, and my career sort of launched from there. From there, I went to 2SM, to 3XY. Um, when you're working in the on-air side of it, obviously you're very exposed to the programming side because that's what you do. You fulfill that. Uh, and you pick up your own ideas about, you know, should we be doing it this way? Should we be doing it that way? Is there a better way of doing this to get from point A to point B to point C? Are we appealing the way we should? Who is our audience? Are we hitting that properly? So that interested me and that interest manifested itself in what I did at work. Um, and as I got to the back end of the 70s, FM radio was about to yeah. start and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, there's a content job going with one of the applicants who has just been granted a license. You should apply. I did. I got the job and I stayed there for 38 odd years. That's and, unbelievable. Um, did you own a bit of it? For a short period of time. Um, look, I was still quite young when that happened and I, I wasn't flush with money, but the opportunity came up to buy some shares. And so I bought as much as I could afford at the time. 
and then when it was sold to Rod Muir in the mid eighties, uh, there was a very good return on investment. Okay. <laughs> it was up around the one thousand six hundred percent return on your investment. That's pretty good as a so, young man. Yeah, so uh, that that enabled other things, yep. which uh, I'm still feeling the benefit of really? these days. So grateful for the chance to tip into it. Um, I regret not selling everything that I owned at the time and, you know, <laughs> moving back to mum's with my wife. And, and buying uh, more shares. And, and buying more shares because the multiple was insane. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, it is what it is, and I'm very grateful yeah. for that opportunity along the way. So, yeah, I was an owner, but a part owner. Okay. Uh, now, a lot of this sounds fluid, so it's formative years in the industry and FM that's coming up. Um, do you just muck in and do whatever was required at the time, or were you quite precise in wanting to be behind the microphone and wanting to be on the production side, or was there a lot of... Is this the FM part of yeah. it? Yeah. I was employed as the program director and working closely with a consultant, a guy called Trevor Smith, and initially I wasn't going to be on air and then there was thought that I should be as well. And we spent the first six months, and it was probably the best six months I've ever had in my career in radio, where we walked into an empty building with no staff, no facilities, no anything. There were six of us uh, at the beginning. And six months later, it was a radio station, a full-blown radio station. All the equipment, all the albums. We were one of the first to buy a computer, which was about the size of a Volkswagen, <laughs> uh, where we did our music programming yeah. and put out kilometres of printouts. Were of, you, uh, this, that, and the were other. you using cartridges or vinyl? Uh, we were at the cartridge stage. But we also had vinyl. We had turntables. Mainly everything came off cartridges at, at, at that stage. But a lot of the guys on air still enjoyed spinning records. Yeah, right. Uh, there's something about pulling a record out of a cover, yeah. um, queuing up the track yeah. and doing all that. I, I don't know. They're, and for those of us who were working at the station at that time, we'd come off the back of a lot of records being played. Um, so that was part of it. But car machines and record players disappeared a long time ago. It, it's all off the lives, and it has been for a long time. And what about uh, during this journey, mentors or people that inspired you that you looked up to? Uh, well, I've been lucky enough from, from both the on-air side and the off-air side to have people who uh, who go about their their way of doing things that, that you admire and you pick up bits and pieces of it. From a radio point of view, um, people like Rod Muir, who was a giant and so uh, lateral in the way he approached everything um, from a management point of view as well as from a, a content point of view. Big influence on me. Trevor was a big influence on me. And along the way, I've been influenced both from, for want of a better term, from above me as well as from below me right. in terms of looking at how people younger than me were going about doing things. And I'm talking about, I'm in my 20s at this stage, um, but there are there were new people coming into radio, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and they had great ideas as well. Yeah. And I've always been keen on making sure that I look the whole way around me to uh, to look for influences because yeah. they come from the strangest places. Yeah. Now, you presented Rock of Ages and then you move on to uh, the national executive of AFL on Triple M? Yeah, a, a lot of that was concurrent. Okay. Um, what happened was... 
I uh, was content director and I was also on air. Then I was offered the opportunity to be the general manager in the late 80s. So I went from being one version of me in many ways to turning up to work wearing a suit and a shirt and really? tie and board meetings and budget This is not the disc jockey life at all. Well, I, I enjoyed it for a little while. And I promised myself at the time that I moved out of content that the guy who replaced me wasn't going to have a general manager telling him how to program the radio station. Yep. I kind of figure you've got to stay in your lane when you do your job. Um, if you've got a suggestion to make, uh, by all means, make that sort of as a corridor conversation, but not a I think you should yes. uh, kind of conversation. And the person that we had there was very good at their job. But I remember there was a particularly hot summer's day and I'm in the beautiful office with the big view out the window and all of that and I watched a, one of the guys, a mid-dawn guy, who I'd recently hired prior to becoming GM from Port Augusta. And uh, he jumped out of his car that was parked in Bank Street in South Melbourne on this hot day, just wearing a pair of shorts, thongs and a T-shirt. And I'm there in the suit and the shirt and tie and about to have an argument about budget projections and what the hell am I doing? Am I being true to myself? So I wandered downstairs um, and pulled the pin on my GM career and just went back to being on air. Yep. Did that for a little while and then was asked to get back into programming as well. Did that until 1997 when we started doing our footy coverage. That was a two-year battle to get footy on air. And why did you think footy was a good fit for radio? (laughs) There was no sort of, you know, inspired moment with that. We live and breathe by our ratings results, surveys. Um, That's the metric that our salespeople go out and use to bring in revenue, and it's important. And the station did extremely well seven days a week, for six months of the year and did extremely well five days a week for the other six months. Yep. The other six months being the footy season. No one listened to us on the weekends. Yeah. Uh, we were a male-skewed under-40 radio station at the time. Yeah. And what does anybody in Melbourne do? Uh, Saturday. You're either at the footy or you're listening to it or you're consuming it in some sort of way. But nobody at an FM station anywhere had done sport. Uh, FM... FM's programming domain was exclusively music yeah. um, with maybe a little bit of talk and a bit of comedy, obviously. Yeah. Um, but sport was anathema. Uh, yeah. it, it, it just it didn't fit. It's funny looking back, though, because AM was a lot of talk. Yes. And FM you'd listen to for music because well, it was stereo. But, well, it was a better quality. And it was FM uh, yeah. as well as stereo. But much crisper, cleaner signal. Um, but I thought... The arse is falling out of the station every weekend during the fo- so a very simple solution is we start doing footy. Yeah. Uh, and that was knocked back the first few times I proposed it. By the radio, by the AFL? By the, uh, by internally, by yeah. the company, uh, by the board. Um, it's not our brand. Uh, it, we're just going <laughs> to scare away all our audience who want to listen to music on the oh, weekend. Really? And I, I thought, well, there, there will be some who do listen to us purely for the music. And the, I said, but in a town like this, there's enough footy support um, and we don't have an audience. We, we we used to have commercial-free weekends. Hey, it's another commercial-free weekend. 
it was commercial read because nobody was buying any ads on the weekend, you know what I mean? Yeah, so we tried yeah. to turn some, a negative into a positive. So anyway, eventually I was given the green light to approach the AFL. Wayne Jackson was running the yeah. AFL at the time. Walked into his office and I uh, said, we want to do it. And in his avuncular way, he said, how do I know that you're not just going to rob audience from somewhere else? Which was kind of our plan. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it differently, and we'll, and we'll pinch Build audience our from audience. the other stations yeah. that were doing it at the time. I just said, "Well, no. We'll, there are many people who listen to footy on the radio, but there are more people who are footy fans who don't listen to the. So we're going to do it differently, and we went about our way doing it differently. We were granted the license. The first license was thirty grand for the year. Yep. I won't tell you how much is paid these days, but it's seven um, figures. Very much so. It's the seven <laughs> figures. Um, but there's a business case that supports that. Yeah. So we started doing it, and it just resonated very quickly. We put a different team together to that which was um, expected. Who were your uh, first callers? Uh, we had uh, Eddie McGuire. Yeah. Um, Stephen Quartermain was in the yeah. equation. Yeah. Uh, we had Dermot. We had Dougie Hawkins. Yeah. Um, Dougie, who I adore. I used to pull up. Doug, he, he'll say, oh, I've seen him and uh, he done good. And uh, uh, and look at him there when he run up the ground and he just mangled. And I said, Dougie, what you say, if it's a really insightful uh, student of the game was Doug. And he said, Lee, I know it's I saw him and he ran up the ground and he had all of his, you know, uh, participles and tenses and all of those things worked out. He said, but if I start speaking like that, I won't be me. Yeah. Um, which I thought was an interesting, That's interesting. observation yeah. and side note to what we were saying. So footy started and uh, it's still going and it's probably the longest running program we now have on our network. Yeah. Uh, Triple M Football. Oh, and it grew. Uh, our Adelaide station picked it up, understandably, very quickly. Um, uh, regional started to pick it up. Hobart picked it up. So yeah. the AFL states immediately embraced it. Uh, and then obviously with things like the Brisbane Lions doing as well as they did in, in, in the 80s, Brisbane came on board because all of a sudden AFL, AFL was a thing. Yeah, yep. it was a thing. Um, and it just grew and grew from that. That's amazing. Yeah. What about the going from radio... And you also had uh, a foot in television at one point in time with Night Moves. What's the difference between radio and television? Uh, and how did a gig on TV come about? Oh, that just, I stumbled into that. Uh, I was at XY at the time, so we're back in the 70s now. It's 19, uh, no, 77. It's a long time ago. <laughs> and Gadinsky rang me up. Gadinsky's a mate. And he said, I'm going in to Channel 7 for a meeting. I want you to come with me. So what's it about? He said, I'll tell you in the car. And thankfully at that stage, Michael had stopped driving. Um, it was one of those people who, if he was driving and you're in the passenger seat and he's talking to you, he's just looking at you the whole time he's talking. And it's kind of like, can you, please, look forward. Terrible. Anyway, we got to have a meeting at Channel 7 uh, with Gary Fenton, who was the content director of Channel 7 at the time, and a guy called Andrew McFeedy. And uh, Andrew uh, was involved in the videotape department there and was a, uh, a young, he was 22 maybe at the time. I was about 23. Uh, Gadinsky was 24. And Fenton said, we bought a whole bunch of programs out of Europe and when you buy programs, you get other stuff in the package. 
They wanted program A, B, C and D, but along with that came all these rock concert videos uh, out of Europe. Wow. And they were live music performances. And we've got all this content, we've got nothing to do with it. By the end of the meeting, uh, Gadinsky was the executive producer, McVitie was the producer, I was the host, um, and we started within days in what was meant to be a seven-week run in Melbourne only so we could burn up this material. Um, the following week, Hobart picked it up. The following week, Adelaide picked it up. The following week, Sydney picked it up. By the time we got to seven weeks, it was a national live show on a Friday night. Wow, live TV. Live TV. Live, 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 live to air. Two hours. Everybody who was involved in the show ordinarily did something other than that job at the station. Um, so it was a great opportunity for people to upskill. Um, and we just had a ball. Yeah, and, yeah. and it kept on going for six, seven years. Um, and that was fun to do. But I always considered the, the, I was a radio guy who had a part-time job in television. Uh, I never thought of television being, well, radio's, you know, I'll let that one drift away from the pier. And uh, here I am in TV land. So radio's your true love then? Uh, Radio is what I enjoyed more. It's yeah. not that I didn't like TV, but radio is a very intimate medium. Uh, you very much, once you're in your spot, your shift, your session, it's just you and a microphone and you perceive to be out there listening, which you're trying to bring into a singular, you, you know, address an audience as if there's a multitude of them out there. You try and make it one-on-one. A little melting pot man, we used to call it. There's sort of an amalgam of all of our audience. Um, but you press the buttons. When when you want something to happen, you make it happen. Television's a much more convoluted process. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. There are a lot of people involved in the chain. Uh, radio's very direct. And radio's very immediate. If during a song something happened and the news were buzzed and said, hey, there's just been a major whatever... Within literally seconds, we can put that to air. Yeah. Um, uh, if somebody rang and it was a musician who was returning a call that you'd made, can I speak to you? You could change things around and you'd put them to air. And you'd, there, there, there was, it was more your own zone. You're, yeah, you're, you're, it's very dynamic. Yeah. Obviously working with a lot of people in order for the show to happen, but when you're in there doing it, it's it's like a singular thing. Yeah. And I just found radio infinitely more interesting. I don't miss television. Um, I was always a little bit befuddled at others who sort of thought that television was a step up yes. from radio. Yeah. Uh, I never saw it that way. Yeah. And if you want to follow the money in media, it's in radio. Is that right? As far as on air is concerned. It, uh, just look, I, at, just I look at John Laws, Alan Jones. Look at Hamish and Andy. Yeah. Look at uh, numerous people involved in radio. Uh, Kyle and Jackie O, yep. uh, and they're sort of at the very peak of it, but there's a huge amount of people hovering right up there. Yeah, right. Um, somebody once said, uh, I heard Eddie quoting it. I don't know if it was an Eddie McGuire quote, though. Radio buys the house, TV puts the pool in the back out. I have heard that before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I might be giving false credit there, but I'll, I'll give it to Eddie because I heard him <laughs> say it. Yeah. I've seen a young photo of uh, Lee Simon with quite the mullet and meatballs. Now, was it wasn't it? a mullet. I, I, <laughs> I, I want to be very, very clear about this. You know, I think I might have seen a photo of you sitting with 
uh, Deborah Harry. Or, yes. So you meet you're you're a young man meeting all these incredible celebrities. You're a fan of music. Um, how is that experience? You know, hanging out with rock royalty. It's part of the buzz of the job, um, and you never get blasé about it. Um, you're lucky enough to meet lots of people from the world of music, from the world of comedy. Um, Lots of people float through the radio station for different sessions, but it was kind of they're doing their job, you're doing your job. Um, they're there to promote their music, yeah, and hopefully you're having a conversation with them on air, which is not uncomfortable for them to have. And from time to time, you also meet people f- for whom you're just an incredible fanboy, uh, yes, and you try and keep that under control. You try and not be overwhelmed by the fact that, oh, my God, I'm sitting here talking to somebody I've been listening to since I was 12 years old and I've got all their albums and posters on the wall when I was a teenager or this, that or the other, and you just... You must have zoned out from time to time when you're doing that. Every now and then you have one of those, I can't believe I'm standing here or sitting here talking to Mick Jagger or... uh, Robert Plant. Robert Plant or Jimmy Page or uh, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. um, But you've still got a job to do, but at the same time, there's a... other part of you is going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Was there anything that surprised you about uh, people coming in and out, how some people were down to earth and some people were on another planet? Well, there was lots of other uh, on another planet, especially in the 70s for one reason and then once we moved into the uh, 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 stimulant of choice that people were into in the 80s, it became a whole other problem. So, yeah, you know, actually uh, <laughs> speaking of that, Joe Cocker. <laughs> we wanted to do an interview with Joe Cocker back in the 70s. Rest his soul. Uh, and Amazing thought, voice. Uh, and uh, astonishing. Uh, to this day, you, you listen to the stuff no. that he was doing back then. Incredible. And it, it, he was in a league of his own. We thought the only, the only way we're going to get a sober interview with Joe Cocker is to do it really early in the day. Um, he was in Brisbane at the time on tour. We were in Melbourne. We decided we will all get an early flight to Sydney. We booked a room in Sydney to do the uh, the interview. We get off the plane out of Melbourne. McVitie and I, there was a freelance crew that was there. Cocker gets off the plane and he's been helped by two people to walk along. He drained the aeroplane of every one of those little mini bottles. Of Jack Daniels. Could not scratch himself. He could not speak English. So uh, but we managed to salvage uh, something out of that. So uh, to speak to your thing of you know, people who gave you nothing, th- there was a bit of that. You had the occasional surly interview where they gave you one-word answers and you just pulled those to a halt. You know, you gave up while you weren't even ahead uh, before you dug yourself into a deeper hole. Um but probably one of the most significant things that came out was where your comfort zone is. Uh, when you work in radio, you're quite comfortable sitting in a room and way in the back of your mind, you know that there might be a couple of hundred thousand people listening to you at the time. Yes. Uh, or more if you're doing something that's going to air nationally. But that's not intimidating um, or it ought not to be intimidating because it's meant to be a personal medium. And I mentioned before that you try and make it a one-on-one kind of vibe, you know, so that the listener thinks, oh, they're talking to me, uh, not to a crowd. Very comfortable in that zone. A musician will come in who can quite happily be performing in front of, you know, a huge crowd in an arena 
and they get something off the crowd. That's part of the performance. You know, it's the give and take. Yeah, yeah. And they're reacting and they're jumping up and down or they're, you know, waving a lighter or a, a mobile phone in the area with the torches on, whatever. But they're in a studio and they can't see the audience. And many musos have said, God, it's weird just sitting in a room where you can't see the audience. I would conversely say it's weird for me if I'm emceeing in front a concert of it, yeah. and I've got to walk out on a stage and, oh, my God, I can see them all. Uh, so it's horses for courses. You know. Now, on that, yeah. now I have it on authority that you might have walked out on a stage at Calder Park and introduced <laughs> Guns N' Roses yes. at that famous concert. Infamous. I was actually, I'll tell you a story. I, oh, I wouldn't hit, say hitchhike. I caught a lift with my mate's dad and ended up at that concert, which was, I would have been, I don't know, 16 years old. Yeah. Ended up in the front four rows. And I remember everything about that day from it being boiling hot, from yeah. water not being allowed to yes. Sebastian Bach being dacked by the drummer. Yes. To, the wind coming and then the freezing cold and then the mud and everything and then Guns N' Roses came on. Um, and somewhere in there I must have seen you open the act for them. Or Well, I, I wasn't meant to be the MC. Michael Chug, Chuggy, uh, the legendary Michael Chug. Uh, any concert goer through the 80s in particular and the 90s, even if they don't know the name, they would know the guy who would get out and yell at them. Uh, and the language was amazing. And for the sake of propriety, I won't... Uh, colourful, to say the least. Uh, colourful, beyond colourful. There wasn't a C-bomb, an F-bomb, a uh, whatever, all the bombs, the full arsenal of bombs Chuggy would deploy um, as the gates would open at a venue and people would come rushing in to get a good position in the GA area. He'd go, Oi, you in the black T-shirt. And, of course... Like a, a herd of buffalo, they would all come screeching to it because pretty much Everyone's everybody wore a black, a black t-shirt. t-shirt. And that's the name of Chuggy's book, Hey, You in the Black T-Shirt. So Chuggy was Chuggy lost his voice at Rock Arena. He, he could speak his voice like this. And he motioned to me. I, I was somewhere backstage and... Uh, he handed me the microphone as if he was handing me the Holy Grail. Uh, baby Jesus was being given to me by by Chuggy. And I had, apart from the would you please welcome part of the MC's job, I had sort of housekeeping I had yes. to do as the MC. Toilets over there, don't yes. do this, don't do that, yes. don't do whatever. Don't slide down the mud. Don't please. slide down the mud when the mud happened. Um I wanted to say, don't pay $5 for a glass of water you know, back then. This is back and $5 the... was $5. You could buy a car for $5. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, and Chucky kept on scribbling out notes, and the note would say, you're being too polite. Tell the C-bombs to F-bombing this and this and this and that and the other. But that was a blast. I, I remember that concert very well as well. Uh, I mean, this is this is the, at the time the biggest act in the world. Uh, they, they were, and they were disintegrating at the time, which made them even more potent on stage. Yes. By this stage, Axel and the rest of the band weren't talking to each other. Um, Axel, I'm pretty sure, stayed at a different hotel. The band all arrived in one big helicopter. He arrived in another one. Uh, <laughs> John Elliott was running Fosters yes, at the time, yeah. and it was the Fosters coloured blue million-seater helicopter. So he can, he's standing on one side of the stage, ready to go on, the side that I was waiting to come on. Slash and, and Izzy and Duff. And the- they're all off on the other side. 
when they came together on stage, it was just electric. Yeah, they were amazing. Um, and that's not unique to a band, by the way. There are lots of bands where there's incredible friction within, but somehow they harness that friction um, and they make it work. Uh, I won't name names, but there, there's a very Come well on, name names. Uh, Australian band with two of the members would punch on uh, and not just sort of... That, that was me just doing a pretend little left jab like, to Tony's he's shoulder. A, he's actually yeah. hurt me. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a dislocated shoulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't play fighting. It was full-on jostle. And they would do that to themselves, basically, and they'd come out and just blow the roof off the place. Yeah. So, uh, um, now, I want to talk about your career, though, because this is an incredible industry dynamic. Talent comes and goes. Uh, you know, management teams come in, they go out, talent comes onto air, someone else gets replaced. How do you survive so long in an industry that's, you know, dynamic and changing. How on earth do you manage 40-odd years at a radio station without getting sacked or made redundant? What is it about Lee Simon that uh, attracted everyone to you? First of all, I probably should have been sacked on a few occasions and somehow uh, maybe I had the chutzpah in the conversation to kind of talk my way out of that. Uh or people, you know, giving me another chance, I suppose. Um, oh, look, I don't know. There's, a, there, I don't think there's a, a, an individual way in which you can have longevity in an industry. Uh, expand your skill base. Uh, be really interested in the other departments, for want of a better term. Uh, be interested in what other people do. Be aware of the interdependency that we all have, uh, and every cog in the machine. Um, uh, will stop the machine operating in its absence and avoid the hierarchical element that comes with what position you have. Um, and that kind of speaks to what I said earlier on about have a look at people who are newer than you in the game yeah. and those who started earlier than you did and have got more experience than you do. So be prepared to drift from one area to the other should circumstances steer you in that direction. And hopefully voluntarily. Yeah, um, yeah. And in my case, it was voluntarily. Uh, secondly, don't be so single-minded in where you want to be that you put the blinkers on and you're not as aware peripherally of other doors that may open along that corridor. Um, because quite often, a door cracking open somewhere as, as you're heading s- straight ahead Um has got something really interesting happening behind it. Yeah. And I found that several times in my career, the fact that I was open to and aware of other things that are going on. Learn to read the room is another one. Um, if you think the waters are about to rise around your ankles, find higher ground somewhere. Know where that higher ground is and go and stand on it. Um, and be in a drier position <laughs> as other people are perhaps getting their socks wet. You must have seen um, a lot of people get their socks wet. Yeah. In some cases, it was blindingly obvious that they were going to get their socks wet. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that appeals to people working in radio is it, it attracts an incredible variety of mindsets. You've got the bad boys who just want to break the rules all the time. I'm going to say bad boys, that's male and female, um, who are rule breakers and out on the edge and uh, always have ten toes over the line and uh, um, don't get the idea of, mate, I've, I've told you three times already, you, you just can't do that. 
And if you do it again, what you're basically saying to me is you don't want to work here yeah. anymore. I don't want to get rid of you. But if you keep doing that, you're going to get rid of you. And they go and do it and they go off somewhere else. Sounds like they, they they a 12-year-old son. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and some people stay 12 years old. Uh, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong about being mischievous in what you do. So that's basically it. Good luck, good fortune. Uh, try not piss off too many people. And um, I did. Uh, I look back and I go, oh, what was I thinking? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we all have these forks in the road. Uh, and sometimes you've eliminated yourself from one side of that fork being viable because of something you did in a laneway further back. Um, yeah. what, what about, you know, a lot of people go through 50 years of a career and, you know, get a thanks very much for your participation, yeah. all the best. Yeah. You get inducted in, in 2018 into the Australian Radio Hall of Fame. What was that like uh, as a cherry on top? Uh, yes, it was. Um, it came as a surprise to me. It probably came as a surprise to others. What? We all got a chance if easy. <laughs> um, and it's hard to say this without it sounding like mock humility, but it was humbling in, in many ways. It was humbling probably at the most obvious level. I didn't necessarily see myself as one of those people. Yeah, uh, it's an, it is an incredible medium, and I think one of the things about radio that uh, you know the human condition is we've been conditioned over millions of years to listen. Video is quite a new medium comparatively yes. to oral history, which has been passed down. I think we're conditioned to listen. We're we're naturally born to listen. Well, you can multitask. And yeah, listen. well, that's the you, other thing. You have a car and listen to the radio. It's very hard, let alone illegal, uh, to drive a car and watch TV. Radio strong, it's healthy, and it has a future. Um, now, at the end of every interview, I do a quick fire round. I've adapted it for you, Lee, because of your uh, musical knowledge. Oh, please don't put me to that. Yeah, no, I have uh, to do uh, it. But my, no, uh, but anyway, let's get give, into give, your give, personal. Give it, give it, give it your best shot. <laughs> well, who is your favourite singer? <sighs> Look, I, I have a few. And this might strike people as being a little bit odd. I loved Bon Scott, yeah. who probably doesn't pop into people's minds as a singer or a singer's singer. But the way he delivered the songs that ACDC did during his time with the band, to me, is right up there. So for the sake of this being a quickfire round, I'll say Bon Scott. There are many others standing alongside him. Uh, but I'll put Bond up there. Favourite band? <laughs> Without giving away what I'm wearing today, uh, oh, The Beatles by the length of the Flemington Strait. Now, I was talking to someone about The Beatles a couple of days ago and I have it on, well, it's on Wikipedia, it's everywhere, but oh, well, they were done, George Harrison was done with The Beatles when he was 28. Yes, so that body of work, the most incredible body of work, can you imagine having that as a 28-year-old? It was all done over six years. It's unbelievable. Everything they did w w was within six years. Favourite album? There are many favourite albums. You're on a desert island. You've got one. <sighs> the first album I ever bought was Disraeli Gears by yeah. Cream. Yeah. Uh, and that means a lot to me, uh, both from a musical point of view, but it's also evocative of, of a time. 
I've got a massive thing for Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I love the boss. Uh, I don't know which album I would choose of his. Probably Greetings from Asbury Park. Yeah, and a close... These are all equal first. I know you said one and you can, and the Desert Island. Uh, physical Graffiti, yeah, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, an album that I just... When I got it, I just listened to it over and over and over and could not get enough. Most intelligent celebrity you've ever met. Oh, God. <laughs> there are a lot. And it's very hard to kind of single out any particular one of them. Um, Mick Jagger. Yeah. Um, how on top of everything he is. Um, and look, intelligence can be defined in, in many ways, and people demonstrate their intelligence in, in an incredible array of ways. Um, I, 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 my measurement is the depth and breadth of the world intellectually the people live in and by intellect things that interest them and yeah. uh, 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 and and Jagger was one where it's not just about the music there were, uh, there were so many other things the first time I interviewed him uh, was 1978 he and the band had kind of this was when he released solo albums Keith was doing the same kind of thing and I interviewed him in Los Angeles uh, as a 25 year old I was 25 and it turns out he was renting Linda Ronstadt's house in this gated suburb in LA where he had to get past barriers and things to get in. And when a colleague of mine, a guy called David White, and I pulled up there, um, his the housemaid was there to greet us at the bottom of the driveway. She said, Mr. Jagger is in the backyard. He's waiting for you there. She walked with us along the driveway into the backyard. He was sitting in a nice little outdoor setting under an umbrella. It was a beautiful, balmy LA afternoon. And he said to the, the maid is the wrong word, assistant of sorts. Her name was Maria. Maria, go to the 7-Eleven and pick up some beer for my Australian friends. Well, at this point, I'm overwhelmed. There's Mick Jagger. One, two, you can buy beer at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> uh, and three, this is Linda Ronstadt's place. Yeah, wow. She was my hall pass. Yeah. Um, she wasn't there. And the first thing he says, you know where the gold rush started? And uh, I said, oh, Ballarat? Yeah, Bendigo? Like Ballarat. He said, no, it's Castlemaine. I won't attempt the accent. He had recently shot the movie Ned Kelly. Yes, right. So he was a veritable font of knowledge about that era, let alone, you know, the tin, the bucket helmet and the, the Ned Kelly stuff. And we sat there and spoke about Australian history for a little while, and he just wiped the floor with us. How, he, 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 how he, incongruous for a Well, it was. Um so that was interesting, and that kind of sparked off the fact that he there's more to it than just the rock star, which he so totally is. So, God, that's a long answer for your very quick wrap-up here. I'm sorry. Um, um, <laughs> who is your most surprising superstar? Oh, look, there's so many I could rattle off off the top of my head. Ed Sheeran, if, you, if you're talking about somebody uh, contemporary, current. One man, one guitar on a stage... Um, holding an audience captive. He's amazing. Just with his songwriting. Yeah. Which has kept some lawyers employed. Uh, yes. Granted. But every, uh, so many people stand on the shoulders of giants sometimes. Every poet is a thief. 
Look, you're, you're the lapse lawyer and you just make sure that I don't end up in court with anyone with this. Um, uh, other surprises for me, um, oh, surprise superstars. In the media world, pleasant surprise, and some may not consider this person to be a superstar, but uh, I kind of do, uh, James Brayshaw, yep. uh, who... Uh, was working on air in Adelaide when he sort of came onto my radar. He was kind of the sports guy on SAFM. Um, but he was the beginning of a whole new way of broadcasting for sports broadcasters. Um, while at the time he started, it wasn't, wow, look at those lads go. It had pro progressed a long way from that. And you know that somebody is a massive influence and a trendsetter uh, in what they do when all of a sudden you're hearing guys on the ABC using the same yeah, words. Yeah. It takes a little while for it to sort of flow so across the It becomes part others, of the vernacular. But, but it does. So um, by my own metric, I hold him in extremely high regard. Um, Best interview. Oh. One was Bruce Springsteen yeah. a long time ago, 1978, in Louisville, Kentucky. Wow. As Bruce Springsteen is becoming the giant that he is. Um, and more recently, when I, I had the surreal opportunity to interview Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, yeah. which were three separate interviews, and it was the only radio interview that they did for Celebration Day, the live album and DVD that was released recently. And again, they were just surreal and uh, we ended up with good stuff off the back of it. Worst interview. You mentioned one-word answers and surliness. Jimmy Buffett. Really? Of, of all people. Jimmy Buffett with the Hawaiian shirts and the Margarita Sunrise and yachts sailing into the sunset and songs that are evocative of, you know... Um, the sun coming down on a late afternoon with a drink on a beach in a beautiful environment, whatever. And he just didn't want to know about being at the interview. And he just gave surly one-word answers. Miserable. Uh, uh, he was a misery puss. And I reckon I persevered with it for about five minutes. I said, look, thanks very much for your time. And I just hit the stop button on the recorder and got up and headed off. What a great disappointment. Yeah. I might have got, got him on a bad day. What's I was going to say, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever said to you? Probably bumping into somebody. It, 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 it's, it might not come as a surprise to somebody hearing me say this, but it's amazing how people recognise me from my voice in, in, in the most unusual places i could be at bunnings trying to find a left-handed widget to put onto the thing and then i'll ask somebody there and they, and they might say have we met this so, i know you right and they don't and eventually it's your voice were you lee simon were you <laughs> which i thought was funny um and then you kind of, you know, oh, shucks, reluctantly kind of agree to it because it's not something that I kind of seek or chase or feel comfortable with. Um, and then they'll say, uh, my entire teenage years were listening to you yeah. and as a result of me or 
my job, basically. I was just doing what I was paid to do. I discovered this band or that band, yeah. or I became obsessed with guitar and I picked up a guitar and I played a little cover band. Or uh, So that sort of stuff. The, uh, the, the, the fact that somewhere along the way uh, somebody thought of me the way I thought of my radio heroes as a kid growing up in the 60s. So that's kind of fulfilling. It's a warm thing that uh, in your own little box with a microphone and some music and whatever, uh, it touched somebody out, you know, in the garage, tinkering under the bottom of the car. You've given people, you've been the voice of people's soundtrack of their life. Oh, well, that's a bit... Yeah. But, Maybe that's melodramatic, but, 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 but that is true. Kind of in a sense what you're saying is true. And people who do what I've done uh, along the way, I think, would would give the same answer. Um, and what's next for Lee Simon in retirement? Oh, just just kind of joining the dots, but which sounds really bland. Um, I worked for a very long time. I'm, I'm enjoying not having that pressure. I, I'm... Uh, where I worked has kept the door cracked open for me uh, for a couple of opportunities, uh, some of which I'm working on at the moment, podcasts that may appear uh, shortly. Um, So I kind of tinker a little bit with that. Um, Well, listen, Lee, Simon, thank you for reminiscing. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you. uh, Thank you for being on Discipline. Pleasure. Thanks for having me along. 